Today's reading is from the book of Proverbs. This is chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And this is chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, thank you, Michael. Good morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Big, big game yesterday. And the correct team won yesterday. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks were able to beat the Florida Panthers. It's hockey. I don't know what else was going on yesterday. Anyway, you don't seem that excited about it, but I was very excited. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Advent. Uh, Advent usually starts the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We have a quirk in the calendar this year, so it actually runs through. Um, that We're going to start next week, and it runs through Christmas Eve. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically uh, during Advent at, at one verse, uh, and that would be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you got one of these, I hope you got one of these when you came in. This explains everything that we're doing during Advent in terms of uh, teaching and proclamation, but also in terms of giving. Uh, every year, Redemption Church, all 10 congregations, has what's called an Advent offering. This is uh, an offering that we give to the church that's over and above our regular giving um, at the end of the year. And, and we, we, we use that money for something that is uh, close, something that's near, and something that's uh, far away. Every other year, a third of our Advent offering goes to redemption, foster care, and adoption. This is one of the off years, so we get to use that third uh, of the offering for something else this year. And so um, there's three ways that we can actually uh, give and participate in Advent. I was just talking about that third way, give monetarily, and I'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, first of all, we can, we can um, bring gifts. We can donate items to the Refugee Women's Health Clinic. We do that virtually every year. We help restock uh, the Refugee Women's Health Clinic uh, with all sorts of supplies and items that they need. Um, the second thing, and this is outlined in, in this um, uh, handy little bulletin here, is uh, you can volunteer to help with Affordable Christmas, which will be at the Alhambra Congregation on Sunday, December 17th from 1 till 7 o'clock. Just volunteer to be able to help them to manage that whole affordable Christmas event. And then the third way is, in fact, our, our monetary offering. That offering is going to be split three ways this year. Um, so here's the far. I'm going to start at the bottom. Here's the far. We're going to continue to help uh, Hope for Children in Ethiopia. This is uh, the ministry that we've gotten more and more involved in that uh, Iyasu, who happens to attend here during the five o'clock service, he's the executive director. Uh, Cody and some others from our church went to Ethiopia recently. Uh, we had the Ethiopia night. We're sponsoring children uh, there. We're, we're selling scarves. Um, they also have a, a budgetary shortfall that we want to help with. Uh, and so one third of our Advent offering is going to go toward them. Uh, the near offering, that's uh, meaning something in our state or in our city, is going to be for Alongside Ministries. We did this last year as well and found out that there is a person who attends another church here in uh, the Phoenix area who will match any offering that we give to Alongside Ministries from our Advent offering. And so uh, we think that's pretty effective to be able to double the money that's going to Alongside Ministries. Uh, I've been personally involved with Alongside Ministries, partnering with them for more than 17 years. And the church, Redemption Arcadia, has been involved with them for more than four years. And so uh, we're going to do it again. A third of our offering is going to uh, go to Alongside Ministries. Alongside Ministries is a prison transition ministry, and they do absolutely wonderful work, and they help us uh, facilitate being able to get into the prisons and do ministry ourselves as well. In fact, uh, this coming Saturday night, December 2nd, uh, Cody is bringing uh, part of the music team, and I'm going to go down with them, and we're actually going to have a service in North Unit 
uh, down there in, in uh, Florence. So we're very excited about that. We've done that in the past. And so it's just opportunities to be able to serve that alongside helps us with quite a bit. Uh, the last area, which is our close, um, uh, about a year ago, Redemption Alhambra uh, was called by God to build a community learning center on their campus. And Alhambra is a tremendously under-resourced area in our city. And so just taking on this, this uh, challenge was monumental. Only God would be able to do this. And it was amazing to see how God worked in that. Um, first of all, a contractor who attends our Gilbert congregation gave more than $100,000 in kind through materials and labor to help them to actually get the uh, most of the structure of the community uh, learning center built. So it's mostly done, but they need now about $40,000 more in order to fill in everything that they need for this uh, community center. And so uh, about three months ago, the elders of Arcadia were praying about what we would do for the close offering, and, and we came up with the idea of taking a third of our Advent offering and putting it toward the community center uh, at Alhambra, and um, we, we prayed on it. Uh, we took our time to make that decision. We finally decided to do it. I called Tyler Johnson, the lead pastor over all of Redemption, and he said, that is great news because we have another congregation who also felt led by the Spirit to do that. The Gateway congregation is also giving a third of their uh, Advent offering to Alhambra to be able to finish it. We would not be able to handle that $40,000 on our own. But combined with Gateway, we think we can hit that uh, $40,000 mark. And so um, Aaron, who's the pastor there, who has preached here uh, in the past, was just uh, obviously elated and, and overjoyed with the support he feels so much so that he made a video for us. So check it out. Hey everybody, this is Aaron with Redemption Alhambra, and I am standing in the Storyboard Learning Center. This place has been a blessing. A year ago, we started dreaming of what God could do to use this space that God's given to us as a church to bless our neighborhood. Alhambra is a broken place, but God is at work here and we're seeing him do incredible things. So we wanted to create a place where we could partner with community development organizations and use this space for people of all types of backgrounds, all types of walks to come in and learn and grow and be developed. And we've already been seeing that happen this first year as we've been opening up. Redemption Arcadia, I just wanna thank you so much for how you supported us. I think of last year when we started raising for the Learning Center, you came out and ran with us and helped raise money through the run. And now to hear this year that you're gonna be giving to the Learning Center through your Advent offering is humbling. Thank you so much for the ways that you have supported us. Here's where the money's gonna go. We're gonna finish the courtyard. There's some touch-ups there, some security issues, finishing around the playground. We're gonna finish the community garden and money is gonna go towards our tech lab and finishing all of those things this year. And we're so excited that you're gonna be a part of that. Thank you so much, Redemption Arcadia, for your support and prayers. So what he referred to last year is Aaron came up with the idea last, last fall of having a 10K for 10K. So uh, Alhambra put on a 10K race on the canal banks um, with no police supervision. We were just supervising ourselves, which is the way we liked it. Um, and, and in order to run in that race, you had to, you had to give $100, and 90% um, of that money actually went to the community center, and they raised $14,000 that way. Uh, and, and a lot of people from Redemption Arcadia actually went over and ran in that race last year. And so we're just kind of continuing to help them out to be able to get this community uh, center done. So we're very excited about that. So check this out. Read through it. Um, that'll give us an idea of, of what we're doing for the next uh, five weeks, essentially. Now, I have, some, uh, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that Mustache November is almost over. This is the last Sunday that you have to endure. Mike is very excited. I'm very excited. My wife is very excited. Every day during November, Jackie asked me, is it December yet? And so we just got to take a picture on Tuesday at the staff meeting, right, Mike? And then we, we're going to bring our razors to work, okay? So... Just hope nobody sees us during the 29th and the 30th because it's gone, I'm telling you. The bad news, however, is uh, I'm going to have you scrambling in your Bibles today or on your apps. Uh, we're going to start with, uh, like we've been doing, we're going to read Psalm 146. We're going to read a psalm. We're in Proverbs. That's the series. 
This is the seventh and last week of the series on Proverbs, but we're going to start by reading a psalm, and we're going to read Psalm 146. It's a psalm of praise. After we read that psalm, we're going to get into the Proverbs message, but we're going to start the Proverbs message in the book of Philippians, which is in the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi while he's in prison in Rome. He has a section on contentment, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And then we'll get into Proverbs 30 and then Proverbs chapter 3. So a number of different places where you need to kind of have your finger or get ready to click with your finger in order to be able to find uh, for today. Uh, What we've been doing with the Psalms is we've just been reading a Psalm during the Proverbs series, not to explicate it, not to explain it, not to preach out of it, but just to allow the Holy Spirit uh, to apply it to your hearts and your minds as you hear it, to let, it, let the Word of God wash over you. And, and this is the last time we're going to do this until maybe sometime next year during portions of the, the series in Ephesians. A number of you have commented on how you've appreciated us reading the Psalms before we get started. So Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God. While I have my being, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When the earth, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, To all generations, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we do pray that as we look at your word today, that your word would be active and alive in our lights, in our lives, that it would that it would cut us to the bone, to the marrow, through the ligaments, that it would get to our hearts, that it would fill our hearts with joy and instruction and reality. God, that that we would learn, and that ultimately, in our learning, but learning isn't the main purpose, in our learning, in your word, we would be pointed to your son, Jesus. Your son, Jesus, is who we need to rest in. Your son, Jesus, is where we find our fulfillment and our contentment. So it's our prayer that you would do that today. Soften our hearts, open our minds to your teaching, to the proclamation of your son. We ask that in his name. Amen. So Luke titled this sermon, Luke from Gateway, who's in charge of the Preaching Collective, he titled uh, this sermon, Contentment in a World of Consumption, and we suddenly realize how, how ironic, uh, Aslan already mentioned it, we're preaching this contentment message right between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which I admit, I, I, I'm not big on Black Friday necessarily, but I, I, really it's been a cyber weekend for me. Anybody else been to Amazon.com this weekend? Because I certainly have. Yeah, okay, see, yeah, okay. All right. Um, I want to start, though, in Philippians. I want to start with, with what Paul has to say about contentment. Um, this book in the New Testament, Philippians, is toward the end of Paul's life. Paul writes it when he's in prison in Rome, and he's talking about being content. And there's some wonderful teaching that he gets here, but ultimately his teaching is doing exactly what we hope to do every Sunday. It leads somewhere. It leads to the reality of who Christ is, who Jesus is. So here it is. He's starting to wrap up this letter, and he says he writes this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, meaning in the past, but you had no opportunity, meaning in the past. Here's what Paul is saying. A little bit of inside baseball, inside language here. Paul's been in prison now for maybe a couple of years, and when you're in prison, you have no opportunity really to make any money. You, have, you still have needs. 
Um, you still need to be resourced. And so some of the churches were actually putting together offerings and sending Paul a little bit of money to give him some sustenance while he was in prison. Uh, Philippi was a church that Paul had planted some 15 years earlier and really had a very special connection with. Many people would say it's probably his favorite of all the churches that he had planted. But up until this point, they knew that he had needs, and they were concerned for him, and they were praying for him, but they did not have the economic wherewithal or opportunity to be able to supply him with the resources to meet any of his material needs. They had no way, they, they had had some economic trouble in, in, in Philippi and in the church, they had no way to be able to help him out. And so now at last, after this sort of this recession in Philippi was over and things were starting to loosen up again economically, they were able to put together an offering, and Paul had just received this offering from them. So he's thanking them for their offering. He's saying, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys showing tangibly uh, in a worldly way your concern for me. I'm very glad that you were able to send it. And then he writes, and then he uses this as an opportunity to do a little bit of teaching. And that teaching still applies to us today and will always apply. So he doesn't just say, thank you, I rejoice in your offering. He says, now, let me teach you a little bit. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's saying, I would have gotten along just fine without your offering, it's not like this was a life or death. It's not like I wasn't going to make it unless you sent the money. Not that I was um, speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Here's the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life, and he's now saying, I've learned to be content. If you think contentment is hard, it's because it is. You also need to understand that contentment's not a spiritual gift. We can't just plug into the Holy Spirit and be content. It's something that takes the power and the wisdom and the teaching and the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it's also something that takes uh, life experience and learning. We have to learn how to be content. And it's interesting because he's not just talking about being content when things are tough, when there's economic uh, um, instability. He's not just talking. Listen to what he says about his contentment. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every and every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've learned the secret to be able to get along not only when I don't have any money and when I've been thoroughly humbled by life situation, but I also know how to be content when I have plenty of money and I'm being exalted by people because you need contentment then just as well. One of our biggest challenges is that we think that contentment only has to do with the fact that we don't feel like we have enough. He's also teaching that contentment is something that we need when we have more than enough because contentment is not about stuff. It's not about what we have. Contentment is about a frame of mind. Contentment is about a focus on and a reference point to the Lord Jesus Christ because that's where we find our contentment. And he says it in verse 13. He says, I can do all of this. I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. I've learned the secret. And the secret isn't in stuff. The secret isn't necessarily in working harder. Who worked harder than Paul? Nobody. That's not necessarily the secret. It's not bad to work hard. It's not bad to have ambition. Paul was one of the most ambitious persons who've ever lived. None of that stuff is bad. But he says, the secret, the key I've learned is finding my fulfillment and my life in Jesus. I, I, I couldn't help myself. I read this and I think of, of John Townsend and Henry Cloud's uh, ideal and reality graph that we talked about maybe five weeks ago in this Proverbs series. Some of you will remember it. I know some of you uh, are new. Uh, they have this graph that I think is really helpful. Uh, up here, this line way up here, is what they call the ideal line. This is the script that we all have for our lives. This is, 
And some people would call it the fantasy that we all have for our lives. It's not reality. This is where we say, everything's going to be wonderful. I'm going to make more money than I need. I'm going I'm to have wonderful relationships that never have conflict or dissonance or difficulty or frustration. My career is going to be amazing. I'm just going to make little pit stops along the way to wonderful success. I'm going to be exalted by everybody I know. This is, this is the I'm going to be a social media superstar. This is, the, this is the ideal life. It's a fantasy. And then they say down here, this line here is reality. This is where we actually live every single day. And, and they say that between that ideal and reality, all that space in between is where you and I have our issues, and we have our dysfunction, and we have our suffering. And part of the reason is our fault, not all of it, but part of the reason is our fault because we have unmet unrealistic expectations about what life is going to give us. And so we become very disappointed. And they said the key to being able to meet the demands of reality, to be able to live where you are in reality, is to understand the wisdom of God and to develop the character of God. That's the whole point of Jesus, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and know that he is our Savior, he is our life, he is the one in whom we live in victory. That's the key. Have the character of God, the, the, the understanding of God, the perspective of God. Have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus and also have the wisdom of God. That's what will allow us to meet the very difficult demands of reality. But as I continue to think about this, I continue to ruminate on what I think are four of the areas where most of us really struggle with this. And I get this simply from reading essays and talking to people, just talking to people, and then looking online and seeing what's going on out online. Here are the four areas we all continue to struggle with. Number one, we're just not happy with who we are. We're unhappy with who we are. We are. We live our lives, for the, we don't say this out loud, but we live our lives looking around at everybody else and comparing ourselves. In, in, in research, it's called the social comparison process. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And we're looking around and going, that person doesn't seem to have any problems. They have problems. They just hide them better than you. I want to have that person's life. They don't seem to have any problems. That person seems to make more money than I do. I want to have that person's economic income. Uh, that, that person has the body that I want. I'm never going to be able to have that body. That person has that. I want to be someone else. And sometimes there are people we know. We're actually envious of friends of ours. Sometimes there are people we don't know. They're just people we see or run into. Sometimes there are people that are in the public square. Oh, to be Patrick Kane for one Chicago Blackhawks game. That would be so wonderful for at least one of us in this room anyway. You, you, you know, they're in the public uh, Maybe it's somebody online. You don't even know them. You just know them uh, from being online. But we're envious of, of, of other people. We're unhappy with who we are. We all want to be someone else in some respect. And, and I'll tell you, social media profiles only exacerbate this problem. Do you understand that? You ever read, I, I like to just read social media. I'm partially on Twitter, partially just to read the profiles of people. Because they're all full of lies. There aren't that many spectacular people in the world. There just aren't. You ever read these profiles? You're just going, oh, please. I am dying to read some honest profiles. Just di I'm dying to read a profile that says something like this. I'm just an average guy who doesn't really say anything very profound. In fact, I'm mostly kind of boring, and I like to spend my time sitting on the couch watching Netflix. <laughs> Want to go out? I'm just, I'm looking. Here you go. I read a guy's profile last week. I love this profile. He said, I'm strategically average. Yes, my brother. Yes, my brother. Okay, but these profiles, you know what we do when we put up a profile? We're trying to create envy. We're trying to create envy. We want the world to look at us and go, wow, I wish I was that person. It's not reality. Do you understand it's not reality? Real life is what happens outside of social media. I hope you understand that. When people are posting on social media, they're only posting the mountaintop experiences. 
That's it. And, and here you go. If you haven't figured this out, you are way behind the curve because a couple of weeks ago, Time Magazine came out with an essay. And if, and if Time Magazine has figured this out and you haven't, you're way behind the curve. And here's what Time Magazine said. Time Magazine said that Instagram is the worst social media for mental health because it promotes and endorses a culture of compare and despair. A culture of compare and despair. People post things online so that you compare your real experience to their dressed up experience and you despair. Creating envy is the new cool. Creating envy is the new cool. And by the way, it's unsustainable. The harder you work at trying to stay on top of this, the harder it is to stay on top of this. Spend your energy somewhere else. Here's the second thing. We're unhappy with where we are. Oh, my goodness. Seems like everybody I talk to, they want to be somewhere else. They want to live. I'm not saying be somewhere else. It's not fun being with you. I just want to, Frank, I want to be somewhere. No, they want to live somewhere else. The number of people who can't stand living in Arizona, and there's 8 million of us here, but most of us can't stand it. We don't like it here. And here's what's really funny to me. I travel a lot, so I go to places like Philadelphia and Wisconsin, and they find out I'm from Phoenix, and here's what they go. Oh, it must be so wonderful there. I wish I lived there. You don't have to shovel sunshine. Oh, it sucks there too, okay? Everybody wants to be somewhere. My neighborhood, I'd rather be in a different neighborhood. I don't want to be in this city. I don't, I don't want to be in this state. I want to move from Gilbert to Arcadia. You get to Arcadia. I think we were better off in Gilbert. No, you weren't. But at any rate, we want to, we, we all, I call this the geographical solution to our problems. And most people think it'll work. If I just move somewhere else, somehow my problems won't come with me. Here's the problem with the geographical solution to our problems. Wherever you move, you're still there. <laughs> Your problems are coming with you because many of the problems you have are generated by you. And, and for, for years, it was Montana. I want to move to Montana. Montana, I got to go to Montana. Montana sounds wonderful. I want to move to Montana. I want to have a house in Montana here. The cost of living is lower there. There's not very many people up there. And people started moving to Montana. Guess what? They found out that Montana sucks. And now, you know where the new place is? It's Tennessee. Oh, my God. Everybody wants to move to Tennessee. I've got to move to Tennessee. Tennessee is where it's happening. Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. Everybody's moving to Tennessee. If you're not in Arcadia, you're moving to Tennessee. That's what I found. <laughs> Tennessee is not the cure for Arcadia. Just let me tell you that right now. Okay? We're just unhappy with where we are. We're also unhappy with what we're doing. We are we get together at things called um, 10 o'clock breakfast at, at Matt's or happy hour, which sometimes starts at 2, and we complain about our jobs. And the funny thing is, is that we went to school, and then we went to college, and we had a major, and then we went to graduate school, and then we, met, went, we did all of this to prepare for this career, and then we have this resume, and we went through the interviews, and we spent money to get all tooled up for this job, and now we're going, this isn't exactly what I thought it would be. Of course not. You, had, you have the, the reality graph. You have the ideal up here. No job lives up here. No job lives up here. And you're living down here in reality. We got all fired up for this. And it's, now listen, work is important. I don't want to dump on work. Work is really important. God created us to produce. He didn't create us just to consume. He create, created us to produce. And work is important. And there's a very strong theology of work, but the idea that all fulfillment in life comes from what we do, it's empty and elusive. Haven't you noticed that no matter what job you have and how much we fret about getting that job, and then once, once we're in that job, we find out that that job, whatever job it is, every single job has frustrations and unreasonable issues and challenges and hardships that we don't like, and routine that we don't like. Every job has aspects that we don't like and wish could go away, and sometimes we leave that job because of those things. And then we find another job that we think is going to be perfect, and we find out it's not perfect. And it's tough. We're unhappy with what we're doing. And then finally, we're unhappy with who we're with. 
Now, again, we don't talk about this out loud very much, but we are. And here you go. If you're single, I want you to listen up right now. It's very important that you listen right now. I'm going to talk mostly to the marrieds, but you singles need to hear this because you're not really with somebody yet. And you might want to know about this stuff. So here you go. Married people, look up here like junior camp. Okay, here you go. All right? Okay? Married people. Remember when all we thought about, all we thought about was how we were going to get this person to spend the rest of their life with us. That's all we wanted. Oh, to just have this person in my life. And we started by asking them out if we could just get her to go out with me. And, th and then if we could just get her to commit to an exclusive relationship with me. And then if we could just, if I could just ask her to marry me and she would say yes. And then if she would just marry me. And now if she'd just leave me alone. <laughs> you can reverse the roles too, okay? Oh, if he would just ask me out. If he would just be exclusive with me. If he would just ask me to marry him. I just wish he would play golf all the time and leave the checkbook with me. Uh, a checkbook is how people from my generation used to pay bills and things, okay? So in case you're wondering what a checkbook is, all right? Reading Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is, other than the Bible, the best book ever written on marriage, bar none. In there, he cites longitudinal research that shows, this is really sad, 77% of married people, if given the opportunity to get married again, 77% of people would not marry the person they're married to currently. That's just sad. That's just sad. Did you also know that someone new is often someone worse? Someone new is often someone worse. These are just research facts. Second marriages fail at a higher rate than first marriages. Third marriages fail at a higher rate than second marriages. And for those of you who are really perseverant, fourth marriages fail at a, at a rate that's higher than third marriages. Those of you who are single, you, you call yourself sometimes alone. Understand, being alone is not necessarily worse than being with someone else. Can I get an amen? <laughs> In fact, depending on who that someone is. Okay, so here you go. Here's our big idea. Learning contentment means resting in Jesus. We're trying to find contentment. Not that these things aren't important, but we're trying to find that existential fulfillment that only Jesus can provide in all of these other things. B.J. Thompson, the author and pastor, says this. Until Jesus is enough, nothing else will be. Until Jesus is enough, nothing else will be. So, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Let me read it, and we'll start unpacking this stuff. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. He's talking to God here. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is interesting to me. 31 chapters in Proverbs. Uh, these three verses, it's the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. This is actually a prayer. But yet, we find great wisdom in this prayer. He makes two requests. The author, the author is a guy, supposedly, named Agur. We'll talk about him in just a second. But he makes two requests. He says, I want, I want honesty from you, God. Keep falsehood and lying far from me. I don't want to be uh, deceitful. I don't want to bear false witness. And the second thing he prays for is protection against the extremes of poverty and wealth and the consequential snags of each of those extremes. And he delineates those snags. He says, if I have too much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think I'm all that and I don't need God and I'm going to turn my back on God. But if I don't have enough, I, I will be tempted to do something that will dishonor God. I'm going to steal, or I'm going to lie, and I'm going to bear false witness. Bearing false witness and lying is often the result of not being content. This is a prayer of contentment. 
And he says, one of the reasons I want to be content is because I don't want to lie and I don't want to bear false witness. Now think about our own lives. When we lie and when we bear false witness, very much of the time it's because we're not satisfied with something. We're not content. We want to control something. It's not good enough for us. And so we deceive and we lie and we bear false witness in order to try to control and get things the way we want them. We are denying the sovereignty of God and the grace of Jesus Christ when we do that. This is a prayer of contentment. And I know we read that prayer, and praying that we don't have too little makes a great deal of sense to us, but he prays against having too much. Think about Philippians chapter 4. He even prays against having too much. No way, way. This is a book of wisdom. And one of the toughest truths that we all have to swallow, and it's been proven time and time again, is that the test of poverty is actually easier to pass than the test of prosperity. It is. And I know right now, some of you are thinking, please, Lord God, test me with prosperity. I can pass that test. Please, Lord, test me in that way. But the truth is, when we think of economic trials and we think of contentment, we almost always think about the trial of unsustainability and not abundance. And yet that abundance trial is a greater challenge to us than poverty is. There's an old saying, it goes like this, more money, more problems. More money, more opportunity. More money, more responsibility. And every one of those little say, every one of those is correct. The more money you have, guess what? There's a burden, there's a problem, there's a challenge that comes with that. You have to manage it, you have to keep track of it, you have to understand where it is. Not that that's a bad thing, but I will tell you, that starts to weigh on you. And then, when your 401k takes a little dip, the anxiety that comes with that, that's an anxiety that somebody else may not be experiencing. You need to remember, I should be thankful for this anxiety. At least I have a retirement account. 80% of people in the United States, the richest country in the world, don't have one. Their retirement plan is Social Security, or, believe it or not, 20% of people say that their retirement plan is that they're going to win the lottery. Ideal, reality, hello. 20% of people said that, have said that, okay? We need to understand that, that, that we struggle with this. There also is more opportunity when you have more money. And with that opportunity comes responsibility. We can't just... We can't just big, build bigger barns. There's, there's a parable in Luke about that, as a matter of fact. The guy who has a bumper crop, and he says, I'm just going to build bigger barns to store my stuff in. And God says, today your life will be demanded of you. It's not about who has the most toys when, when you die. This is a book of wisdom, and it's trying to impart wisdom to us. All Having money can be much more challenging than most of us realize. My mother-in-law, who passed away in 2001 at the age of 62, uh, we used to get together, and, and occasionally she would say, I really appreciate the simple life that God has given me, because they had a very simple life. She said, I appreciate the simple life that God has given me because I don't have the anxiety that it seems that other people with more stuff than I have seem to have. And, and I used to look at her and think she was crazy. But I understand it now. I understand. Again, nothing wrong with having. But there comes a burden. The burden of opportunity and responsibility and management with all of that. So just a little bit of context. Who is this guy, Agur, who writes chapter 30? And I know some of you are like, I don't really care. Well, I have the microphone, so give me 30 seconds on this. The only, the only information we have on Agur is actually in chapter 30. That's it. It's the only place his name appears, it, even in, in history. Here's what we do know. Uh, most scholars think that he, if he was a real person, he's a contemporary of Solomon. Uh, and his name, the word agur, literally means collector. So maybe it's Solomon's secretary, and he's just collecting the sayings of Solomon. Solomon wrote something like 3,000 Proverbs were told in 2 Kings, and so maybe he's the one who's collecting them and, and keeping a file on them, and then when Solomon wasn't looking, he said, I'm going to throw my name in there, just, you know, kind of like signing a brick or something when you build a, when you build a new church. But that's, that's who Agur 
uh, is. But he's got really good stuff. Listen to the context of these three verses that we just went through. Verses 1 through 6. Listen to what he says. The words of Agur, son of Jakah, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Anybody feel that way? I'm weary and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind to his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So verses 1 through 6, Agur is basically saying, I'm not God, but he is. And because he is God and I'm not, I can place my trust in him. I can know that whatever he determines by his providence or his protection is going to be what's best for me. It's really similar if you read Isaiah chapter 40, verses especially verses 12 through 14. Isaiah has a passage in there that's pretty much the same thing. Who hung the moon in this? Who did this? Who did that? Who created all of this? It's the Lord God. It's Job chapters 38 through 40. After Job has been through all of his trials, which were miserable, and finally God comes to him and Job says, God, I have a question for you. God, you have some explaining to do. I was minding my own business and you pretty much wrecked my life. I have some questions for you. And God says, all right, I'll tell you what. You can ask your questions after I ask you some questions. And then he just starts right in on him. Who's the one who hung the sun and the moon? Who's the one that created these mountains? Who's the one that gave uh, breath to the living? Who, who, for three chapters he goes on. And at the end of it, Job says, never mind. They're all saying, he's God, I'm not. He's the source of all wisdom, I'm not. He can be trusted my heart is not worthy of trust. Here's what we should say. To rest in God is wise, and to fidget in me is foolish. You ever look at it that way? You ever think about it that way? When, when we're not resting in who Jesus is, we're fidgeting. We're anxious. We're worried. And in verses 7 through 9, he then engages in this wisdom the main message of which he says, all that I am and all that I have is really at its foundation from God and because of God. Therefore, I can trust him. I can rest in him. What is the definition of rest that we're using here? Rest is a part of what trust is. Rest is the ability to live without undue anxiety. Rest is the ability to live without undue anxiety, recognizing that God is sovereign, God is in control, he's protecting and providing us even though we have no understanding of it sometimes. I, I know from experience that there are times when I am sure God is not providing for me the way I need him to provide for me, and I find out later that he was actually protecting me by not providing for me the way I felt like I needed to be provided for. To rest is to live without undue anxiety. It's Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and weighed down by life, and I will give you what? Rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is not the law. I've fulfilled the law. My yoke is not the burdens of these of this world. My yoke is not sin and all the trouble that comes with that. My yoke is grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. My yoke is easy, and I'm the one who takes your burden away from you, so your burden is light. Come to me, everyone who's just tired of it all. Jesus says, trust me, and there will be rest. Trust is hard these days, and I know that's a really big ask to place all of your trust with God, but that's what he says. And he says, I'm asking you to trust me because I'm God and you're not, and because I continue every day to meet every one of your genuine needs at the foot of the cross. When we think of needs, we think 
economic needs, relational needs, material needs, all important. But our problem is, is that our biggest need, our, our existential need for God, that, that God-shaped vacuum in our soul can't be met with the things of this world. It can only be met with Jesus Christ. It can only be met at the cross, the exchange of Jesus' life for ours. His perfect and holy life, the pure, perfect, sacrificial lamb going to the cross for us sinners, the imputation of his holiness and righteousness to us, that he paid for that sin, his love and forgiveness, his unconditional love, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. He didn't make it conditional on us knowing him. He just did it for us. And then, and then he gives us the power of life and victory through new creation and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus went to the cross demonstrates clearly for us that we can rest in him. That he took our burden to the cross so that we never have to deal with that burden. And that takes us to our closing proverb and application. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Generosity, that's what this proverb is talking about. Generosity is an indication of contentment, trust, and rest. Generosity is a clear indication of contentment, trust, and rest. He says, honor the Lord. This is now Solomon. He says, honor the Lord, and we do that by sowing our very best seed for God. We don't hold back the best seed and sow our marginal seed for God. We, we give him our best. We give him the first fruits. And this is a point of honor and not cash. We have to understand this is a point of honor and not cash. It's a frame of mind. It is a perspective. It is a character issue. It is an understanding of who God is and who we are. It is a point of honor and not cash. It applies to both wealthy and poor. If you get $100,000, you take out the first fruits and give it to God. If you get $10, you take out the first fruits, even though it's smaller than the first fruits of the 100000 and you give it to God. This is, this is a question of honor, not of cash. This is a heart issue. This is not a church cash drive issue. If this was a church cash drive issue, I have plenty of other methodologies that are rooted in Protestant guilt that I would wheel out for you people right now. This is a point of honor. This is a heart issue for God. And according to, to Dwayne Garrett, an Old Testament scholar, the honor comes by using our generosity and our charity for righteous and just and equitable pursuits. And here's what he's talking about. This is what it's rooted in. If you go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know that Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything and then he creates his masterpiece, human beings, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden to work the garden. And there is an ethos, an ethic in the garden in Genesis 2, before the sin of Genesis 3 occurs, there's an ethos of generosity, of blessing, of doing what God calls us to do because it's good and it's right and it's for the benefit of everyone. There is a, a, there's an ethos of generosity. And if you were, go to, you were to go to pre-Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, and talk to them about things like greed, they would, have no, they would have no place to put that in their mind. They wouldn't know what you were talking about. They have no category for that. By the way, if you were to go to them and talk to them about conflict and dissonance in marriage, they wouldn't have a category for that either. The reason we struggle in life, in work, and in marriage is because of what happens in Genesis 3, the fall, original sin. And God comes and he says, all right, because you've disobeyed, I have some curses now that everyone's going to have to live under. And he lists three curses. And these curses are not comprehensive. They're merely representative of the total corruption of everything in creation. The sin infecting everything, us and creation. And that last curse has to do with greed, generosity, and work. It's the fact that from now on when we work and we earn, and we produce, it's going to be by the sweat of our brow. The work that occurred during Genesis chapter 2 
was flourishing and wonderful and rewarding. Now we work hard and it's by the sweat of our brow and we're eating dirt as we do it. And that has created in us, that curse has created in us the ethos or the ethic of greed and hoarding and what I would call that's mineism. That's mine. I earned it. I worked hard for it. I sacrificed for it. That's mine. You can't have it. It's mine. And there's an extent to which that's true. And I'm not battling against that. I'm battling against the heart that's behind that. The heart that doesn't understand that God really created us to be generous and to be a blessing. We're, we're created for generosity. And then Jesus comes and he, he redeems us. And he begins to plant that seed in our hearts by the filling of the Holy Spirit he says, look at what I've done for you. Look at my generous life on the cross poured out for you. You can now be generous. I've not only imputed holiness and righteousness and forgiveness to you, but I've also imputed generosity to you. Do you feel that anxiety and that tension of, that's mine. I've earned it. Stay away from it. And Jesus releases that anxiety. By the power of the gospel, we're transformed to be generous. And it indicates contentment. And we trust God for all of it. Generosity is the antidote for consumerism. Rest is the antidote for anxiety. And Jesus is the king of both. And he says the first fruits. Why the first fruits? It's really actually very practical. You get a nice fat check and you sit down and you know you got to give some to God. But you figure, well, let's look at our needs first. And whatever we have left over, that's what we'll generously give. Have you ever done that? And you find out at the end, there's nothing left over. It's interesting how those needs got in the way. The reason we bring first fruits to God is because God knows our fallen hearts and knows that there won't be any room for him if he's not first. He's either first or he's nothing and it also implies that everything that we have is his in the first place, which is true, by giving to him first. And by the way, just to hear that this is not prosperity gospel teaching. We don't believe in any of that stuff. This is not transactional. God is not a quid pro quo dude. He's just not. He loved us first when we didn't even know who he was. His covenant is with us. He doesn't give us a contract and say, if you sign this contract, then I'm going to sign this. If you do your part, he just loves us. His covenant is with us. And once we're transformed by that new life that Jesus gives us, it is out of the overflow of the rejoicing in our hearts that we come and do what he's calling us to do, not because he makes us do it. This proverb is about perspective, not prosperity. And anybody who uses a proverb like this to preach a prosperity gospel is preaching a false gospel that dishonors and disgraces the truth of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us the eyes to see how truly blessed we are and that our barns and vats are really full, full of life, full of faith, full of hope, and full of rest. By the way, full barns and bursting vats doesn't that contradict the idea of just enough from Proverbs chapter 30? Doesn't that contradict that, Pastor Frank? Good thinking, my Arcadian scholars. That is a wonderful question for you to ask. It means that you're looking closely at this. We need to understand that the barns and bats are not literal. This is about perspective. It's about how we see things. It's about having the same mind in Christ, uh, in, in us that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. A heart fully given to God sees his gifts and his blessings in a new light and rests in the satisfaction of knowing that God is God. Contentment is not about having a lot. It is about joyfully doing with what we have. Contentment is not about having a lot. It's about joyfully doing with what we have. And this is not an anti-ambition message either. Work hard. Be ambitious. Get out there and do your thing. Don't lie on your profile, but build it up as much as you honestly can. But then at the end of the day, whatever happens, 
thank God and be okay with it, with who we are, where we are, who we're with, and what we're doing. Be okay with it. This is Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of this other stuff will be added unto you. He's not saying that if you seek God, I'm going to be rich. He's saying if you seek God first and understand him as the priority, everything else will fall into place the way it should. Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago in his Confessions, not everything we long for is worth having, and the mature person knows the difference. Not everything we long for is worth having, and the mature person knows the difference. Um, uh, sometimes I'll read philosophers if I think I can understand them. Um, Rousseau has this illustration of the dog. I don't know if anybody's ever read about it. And, and just remember as you leave here today, Rousseau is comparing us to dogs. I'm not. I'm just reporting on what Rousseau said. He said, think about a dog. You ever think about a dog? A dog only understands the perspective of the now, the present. And so the dog only suffers pain or joy in the midst of the now. The dog, how many of you have dogs and know this to be true, okay? Uh, see, we have a 100-pound Weimarimer that knows, knows that he's not supposed to get on the counter and take things off the counter. He doesn't care. He's living in the now. The dog is the perfect example of FOMO and YOLO. It doesn't matter what we do to the dog after he's gotten the butter off the, off the counter. It doesn't matter. He just cares about the now. I'll deal with that later. Just the now. Rousseau says that human beings also understand that there's a past and a future and therefore can mitigate and understand current joy and pain. That's actually an advantage to us. But he also says the problem with human beings is that we're moving closer and closer to being like dogs, only worrying about today. And understand he wrote this before the terms YOLO and FOMO ever came out. He was right. He's a prophet. We are headed in that direction. The challenge today is to live in and understand all three, the past. You know what's good about the past? We can confess our sin, knowing that Christ has paid for that, and we can learn from our failures and move forward. You know what's good about the present? The present is that we get to work hard now, but also understand what contentment is and fulfillment is in Jesus. And then the future. God is sovereign, and that's where our promise and our hope lie, because Jesus is coming again. That's the hope and the promise of God, past, present, and future. I do a lot of prison stuff, and there's a couple of chaplains that I've gotten fairly close to down in Florence. One of them, Roy Cherian, uh, he's at North Unit, which is where we're going. I'm sorry, he's at South Unit. We're going to North Unit uh, Friday night, but he'll be there. Um, Cherian uh, and a group of his went to Tanzania earlier this year for four weeks. And they visited 17 different towns, and they worked, and they helped, and they preached, and they put on church. He had slides and videos. And he, and he said, you know, we visited 17 towns, if you could even call them that. When you walk into these towns, you don't realize you're walking into a town. You feel like you're just walking into a mess, into just a mess. The poverty there is something like most of us have never, I certainly have probably never seen poverty like that anywhere in the United States. Just watching it on a video was awful. And yet the people there were so thankful for what they had, filled with smiles and joy. It reminds me of the book, The Progress Paradox by Greg Easterbrook, written in 1999. It's more true today than it was then. I've read it four times. Fantastic book. The Progress Paradox, the subtitle is this, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. Research shows that we are the most medicated, most analyzed, and most therapeutic culture to ever live, and we are richer and more successful and have more than we ever had. And all it's led to is being medicated and analyzed. Doesn't that tell us something? Anyway, in one town that they went to in Tanzania, the church was pieced together from just junk, anything that they could get their hands on, mostly scraps of corrugated metal. They had a dirt floor and cinder blocks for seats, which I imagine are a little bit less comfortable than our black padded seats here. And yet, they would have church for three or four hours, and they would dance, and they would sing, and they would jump, and they would praise God. And when Roy got up to preach, they would hoop and holler every time he said Jesus. They understand how to rest in Jesus. And the irony is they don't even know where their next meal is coming from. 
we all are pretty sure where our next meal is coming from. Perhaps the most amazing thing is that they have a place right next to the church called the Miracle Center. They expect that God is going to do something great. They rest in God. They trust God. They believe. They demonstrate that old saying that we never realize just how much we need Jesus until Jesus is all we have. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Store up treasures in Jesus as a firm foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus is truly life. We need to take hold of him. And everything else will fall into place. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your words and your truth. We thank you for your proverbs and your wisdom. God, we thank you for being able to go through this the last seven weeks to, to, to learn from your word, but more importantly, to hear the proclamation of your son, our savior, the Messiah, the deliverer, the redeemer, the one in whom we find victory. God, thank you for Jesus. We pray again. We just want to see Jesus. We want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.